1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. So picture this. You have a government. That's not new, right? But inside the government, there are many different agencies. Still nothing new, right? But what happens when those agencies don't really like to share, right? And the information that they could share would help different members of society by either preventing certain things from happening or by helping to remedy things that have already happened. So the question is, how do we get agencies within governments and outside of governments to share information? That's what we'll be talking about today. So the book is Traversing Digital Babel, Information, E-Government and Exchange. And the author is Alan Pellet. And, and, First, one of the first things we like to do on New Books in Technology is get the author to talk a bit about themselves. So give us some of your background.
2: Okay, thank you, Jasmine, it's great to be on your show. Um, I am um, a researcher. I teach at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. Um, my PhD in uh, government or political science is from Harvard University, and I have the, the good fortune of, uh, of being a um, the advisee of both Professor Samuel Huntington and Professor Judith Clarke, mm-hmm. uh, two of the most famous uh, world professors, uh, the late Judith Clark and the late Professor Huntington. And um, in parallel to my academic or my research career, I actually have accumulated close to 20 years of working in the technology field. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, I played... Um, uh, every role possible. Programmer, head of a programming group, a program manager, QA, quality assurance, um, um, tech writer. Over 20 years in some of the largest American companies like uh, PepsiCo, Fidelity Investment, IBM, some startups. So the book is actually an attempt to merge my two passions. One passion for technology that was gained by being a practitioner in this field. Mm-hmm. And another one for scholarship to academic
1: Right, so now let's let's talk about how you got from teaching and your 20 years of experience to the book, Traversing Digital Babble. How did this book come about?
2: Okay, so for for a long while, my my two careers were kind of parallel, meaning I did technology, especially enterprise data warehousing, natural languages as a practitioner, and I enjoyed very much working in, in teams. Uh, and I've been fortunate to work with some of the most brilliant minds in in, uh, corporate America,
0: Uh,
2: and they taught me. Basically, I'm kind of like self-taught thanks to them, to Mm -hmm. my friends. Um, In academia, I did research in in other domains, and the book is really an attempt to um, merge the two parallel tracks of my life into one, and um, the book is really about technology in the public sector and specifically, it's about what I consider to be probably the largest uh, problem today in, in the public sector, which is the fact that uh, the government is composed of very large agencies and, um, or departments, and uh, those agencies don't really share information very well with each other. And so the book asks, why don't they share information well with each other, and what can be done to make them want to share information better with each other?
1: Mm-hmm. Now you call it digital Babel. Is there a reason for to use that terminology Babel
2: Yes well first of all'm from the Middle East right. and so <laughs> Babel is the famous uh, biblical myth of uh, people who spoke different languages and it, it is digital Babel in the sense that I tell it in my book in the both the beginning and the end of the book i 'm um, trying to extract actually lessons from the most ancient profession archeology theology. Mm-hmm see if they might be relevant for uh, helping us move forward in the, more, in the newest possible human profession, which is technology or uh, computer science. And specifically, the argument in the book is that um, agencies, very large agencies, like agencies like the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS mm-hmm. or the FAA, agencies' computer systems are very old. And they are built one on top of the other, uh, in kind of like layers of civilization, Jasmine. One layer on top of the other. And so the agencies themselves, you know, comes 2014, they are barely in command of their own systems because of this enormous internal complexity. And then you come from the outside as the president of Congress says, I demand that you share your information better with other agencies and those poor agencies, you know, they, they tell us, but we, we, how can we share? We, you know, we, we are not really in command of our own systems. And there's a very nice um, figure that opens the book that compares the Internal Revenue Service computer S- S- system to Tel Gezer, mm-hmm. which is one of the three most ancient places on earth. Mm-hmm. And it's built of 28 civilizations from 4500 before Christ all the way to the first century mm-hmm. BC. And it shows that in, metaphorically, uh, the, the Middle Eastern or the ancient tale that is built of layers of civilization, one on top of the other, is very similar to the IRS computer system that is also built upon layers upon layers of software built from the 1950s, and that must really communicate with each other. So the, 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 the name "digital babel." How do we traverse? How do we cross? Acro- how do we walk across this digital babel where each agency? It's like its own mini Tower of Babel,
1: mm-hmm.
2: not really talking to another agency's Tower of Babel. Hmm.
1: You know, um, so the question then is: is this a book about perhaps simplifying government mm-hmm. and, and the public sector and access to information?
2: Yeah, in a way it is. And it's really, yes, first of all, you're right. It is about simplifying your system because if, if, not, if you do nothing to really simplify or help them in terms of coping with their own information system, you can't expect them really to share information better with other agencies. And the book starts, the first chapter describing the horrible, horrible um, human catastrophes that result from the fact that agencies don't share information well with each other. Mm-hmm. And maybe later on, I'll, I'll, I'll say something about that too. But really, what really the crux of the, the heart of the book is basically how do you give people, those people are really the officials working with these agencies, how do you give them incentives to actually want to simplify their system? Because the, the way to make this system talk better to each other goes through people. If you can entice, nudge, convince the people to share information better. They might actually do something to simplify their own system in a way that makes it more easily accessible to outsiders. That's really the heart of the, of the argument.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking about some terms here, and perhaps we should uh, define some of those terms. And one of them you're using is, and you use throughout the book, is information sharing. So when you talk about information sharing, what exactly do you mean by information sharing? It would seem that governments and parts of governments share information all the time, but it, it seems like the information you're sharing, you're talking about, is more goes further than just when they need to share information, no?
2: Right. That's an excellent question. And right on target. The, the, in the beginning of the book, I'm distinguishing between three concepts, data, information, and knowledge. Mm-hmm. As you climb, as you ascend from data to information, from information to knowledge, you're slowly kind of like leaving behind the realm of machines and moving into the realm of men
0: mm-hmm.
2: or people. And, and And so basically I chose the word information in between in between them, I do not think, and I emphasize, I do not think that my book is a knowledge-sharing, because knowledge-sharing is an entire different problem. It's a very important problem, but my book is not about it. It involves really talking about people and understanding a lot more more about people. It's not necessarily data, because data in and of itself is kind of meaningless. It, it has a lot of redundancies, and it's and without context, it's meaningless. So information is really those, what I call in my in my book, and also the... Software project that developed, I developed, and have developed since then, based on the book. But it really, it's about what I call information assets. By the way, I'm not the first one to call it information assets. The OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, and the GAO, in the United States, the Government Accountability Office, they also would like agencies to start referring to some of their summarized data, some of their large data sets, uh, as information assets. Mm. So I'm, I'm kind of like piggybacking on, on already an existing trend inside the American government, and that's really what the book is about. If an agency can, and I believe that they already are doing it, conceive of some of its um, information as assets, then we have something to work with. Basically, we can talk the language of exchange. How do they exchange for incentives
0: their assets? So...
1: When I was reading, uh, one of the terms that popped into my mind was the idea of interoperability uh, with respect to systems, particularly between agencies um, and, and those systems being able to work together. And I believe you mentioned um, that different agencies through various governments, but you, you talk about the U.S. a lot, um, have different even different computer systems, different IT systems, software, that don't work with each other and, and don't sometimes work with new versions of the same software. <laughs> so I was right. Wondering, uh, the electronic Exactly. I wonder if you could talk about the idea of interoperability. I know it became kind of a, a buzz term with the release of a book around last year, talk about interoperable systems. So, one you could talk about interoperability with respect to your book and and government.
2: Okay, I, I, there's a lot to say about interoperability. I'll say one thing, one one point which I hope you'll find and, and the listeners will find interesting. There are different levels of interoperability, mm-hmm. and and you can have like machine interoperability, which basically um, defines the fact that an agency, let's say the EPA, the Environment Protection Agency, could access the computer systems uh, of, I don't know, the, the IRS or the FAA and extract mechanically a data set in in a, in a way that that data set is, is, is usable. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the lowest level of interoperability. And even there, there's some people, like the GAO included, that makes different kind of distinction between levels of technical interoperability. The one I'm talking about in my book is semantic interoperability. Semantic interoperability means that the agency is capable of actually extracting from the information system of another agency something that is meaningful, meaningful for the purposes of the agency, the first agency. So the EPA, Not only that the EPA can get in a machine interoperable way, some information assets from, let's say, the FAA, but that that asset is, 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 is meaningful, useful. It could be like a piece in an informational puzzle that the EPA is trying to put together. Mm-hmm. That's the level at which my book is. And, and here, this, this, I hope you'll find the most interesting things, and I also received and executed a Google, a Google Faculty Research Award a software based on, on this idea.
0: Wow. Here,
2: the, 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 the issue is the following. Imagine yourself, again, as, a pub, as an official working for the, um, um, let's say, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority, okay? And you, have div- and you execute, you know, con- congressionally mandated programs.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you're concerned with flight safety. And all you know is flight safety. You know nothing but flight safety. You produce very, use, very interesting data sets and information, and they, they, they are stored in machines. But all you know to do, Jasmine, is flight safety. So you'll tag it with words and categories about flight safety. Now, it is absolutely possible that someone in the EPA, that's actually the thing that you did, that last information asset that you, that you produced as part of that congressionally mandated flight safety program, is that actually one missing piece in the information puzzle? that somebody in the EPA is trying to put for environmental purposes, right? Mm-hmm. But how, he, how is he going to find it, Jasmine? The guy in the FAA, he doesn't care about the environment. Mm-hmm. He's not getting prog- money from Congress to produce, so they, to produce basically or tag information assets based on the needs of people that he doesn't know that they even exist. So the key question here with the books is asking, mm-hmm. how are you going to help people inside government discover the, the unanticipated potential secondary uses of information assets produced by other agencies in different domains. Mm-hmm. Until we solve this problem, we're not going to get very far in this information sharing game because all of the American government, it's true also in, the, in Europe and other places, is, is broken down into departments and agencies each working on legislatively mandated programs each producing information assets that are very narrow, Mm -hmm. only within their domains. Only once we find a way to break down these walls and help those assets be discovered for for secondary uses that were not even possibly anticipated by the original users of this information, only then we can start talking about meaningful semantic interoperability. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other uh, terms that you talk about is and it's, a, it's another term, I, I wouldn't say term, so much as a movement around the globe. And that is the movement toward open data. And uh, right. I, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, open data and its importance, particularly for the public sector, but also for this access by regular citizens and individuals. Okay, so I'm, I'm a
2: great fan of open data. And in fact, when I mean, a project the Google project that I'm executing right now in future projects, I'm actually even building software based on open data and I'm extremely excited about this development. I do have to say that in the context of this book that we're discussing, I'm a bit uh, hesitant and careful. I, I believe that there are different models to share data. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting, recent models is open data, where basically you say to agencies, Hey, you'll get money to execute new programs if, as the American government has stopped doing since 2013, if and only if um, any information asset that you produce as part of executing this program will become immediately available to citizens in open data sites. Mm-hmm. So that's great, Jasmine. That's great, and that works. And you can do st- and you can do stuff with it. The problem is that these agencies, those you know, electronic telgeisms. This layered civilizations of software and data and information, they've been accumulating this mass amount of, of information for ages. Um, they didn't start yesterday. So, the question is how are you going to nudge or incentivize these agencies to actually do something with already the information assets that they have? And how are you going to keep their goodwill going forward? Now, there is a certain in- in- inherent contradiction, conflict, problem with open data. When it comes to the idea that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, promoting in my book, mm-hmm. Just, uh, think about, let's think about it in the, from the point of view of the, um, of the client. Say that you want to buy a pair of pants, okay? and you walk by a nice store, and you see inside a pair of pants. You go in, and you give them $10 or $20, and you get a pair of pants. Would you do that if the pair of pants were outside the window? On a, on a big table with a sign that says free pens, or you grab the free pens and walk away. Not right. given, and not So you see, what I'm trying to say in the book is that be very careful. Open data is great for certain things. But today, you have a whole economy going inside the government of basically, of, the agencies already know that their information assets are worth something, often a lot, mm-hmm. and they are changing them either dollars or equivalent to dollars. If you are too harsh with your open data policy, you may actually damage some very good working mechanism inside government. So the really key question is is we have multiple ways to nudge agencies to um, do something with their information. What is the appropriate mechanism for the appropriate problem? Maybe for certain information assets, some incentives-based exchange inside government is a good mechanism. Maybe for other assets, open data solutions are better. But this, you know, one-hammer-fits-all approach is dangerous. Right. And by the way, I, have, I haven't said that the agency that. I published in 2011 an article that shows that open data um, has, under President Obama, has strong limitations. The agencies didn't really cooperate. A very small number of agencies cooperated. And most agencies refuse to release. And I argue in that article that appeared in Justice that the reason is because agencies are not stupid. The organization, they've discovered the value of their information assets a long time ago. And for the proper incentives or framework, they may agree to release them. And if you just come to them and it says, open, 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 they will not. They will find legal excuses, security excuses, personal excuses, whatever, you name it, but they will all be excuses. And they will not release the information. Then you and I are in the same place.
1: Right. Now, now, one of the solutions you uh, promote in the book is that of data trade. And I was wondering if you could talk about the data trade and, and the, the possible system that you think would be beneficial for government agencies to, to use with respect to data trade.
2: Okay, so uh, the, the great, uh, one of the great discoveries, and I describe it in, in, um, in chapter three, for example, I, when I talk about open data, the name of the chapters gives, it, gives the idea. It says, you know, why open data find agencies closed doors. In chapter four of the book, the title of it is why data trade opens agencies closed doors. So in between the names of the chapters, you see the difference. In other words, open data in its naive version, and I really think that uh, President Obama in, in his first term, was lots of excitement, I have only good thing to say about him, but his administration is people practice a uh, kind of a naive open data approach that, that found a lot of agencies closed doors. What I've done in this book, especially in Chapter 4, is document that there is another mechanism that actually works to help agencies open their doors, and, and, and that is the agencies develop quiet, unnoticed arrangements among themselves. I give you this information and you give me some dollars. Or sometimes I give you some information assets and in return you go to Congress and help me get additional compensation. Or I give you the information and you give me another information that I care about in return. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I give you information. It's all inside government. And in return um, uh, you will give me some people some functions and you will help me pa- get it passed through Congress. So basically what I'm trying to say I didn't invent Jasmine anything. it exists <laughs> today inside that mammoth American federal government and in other countries too, agencies quietly are already doing that data trade. Unfortunately as I explained in this chapter because it's so hidden from the public eyes and, and it's not bad it's actually working. It, it has certain problems, very wasteful. It takes too much time. It, it, it begets information monopolies inside government. So I'm saying, hey, if it's already working, maybe we can take it to the next. Maybe we can build on something that is already working today and take it to the next level and formalize in the form of an exchange arena inside government some of this arrangement. So it takes less time, there's less waste, it's easier for one agency to discover the information assets of another agencies for non-anticipated secondary uses, that's the the, the heart of my idea that I call the public sector information exchange. And it's only inside government. It's not between government and citizens.
1: You know, it would seem like this would be kind of a a no-brainer, but there seems to be some kind of, Resistance and, and you mentioned that agencies are not stupid with respect to the open data because they understand how valuable that information is. But is it more than just agencies understanding how valuable the information is? Is there more of a, a cultural component? Uh, a, a, um, I don't want to share with these people over here. Agencies have infighting or just people not wanting to share information.
2: Yes. No, first of all, you're absolutely right, and you put your finger right on the, on the heart of the problem. Culturally speaking, those agencies, and again, we're talking in the context of the American government because of also the nature of the show, but had I done a similar show in Europe or Brazil or South Africa or India and all these large countries that have many agencies and there are multi-polities, um, you would see immediately that they, they, they have the same problems. But for your audience, I assume that talking you know, the context of American federal government is a little bit
1: different. Uh, no, Easier. feel free to talk internationally. Uh, okay. I will
2: also give you, in a second, I will give you some examples also from, from Australia, from Iceland, and several, several other interesting um, uh, places. And so, in all these places, what you said is correct. Culturally, speaking, those agencies don't like to share information. And they're very concerned. I explained the books are going in lengths into why they're so concerned. They're afraid that you, if they expose their data to outsiders you'll find some data quality problems and maybe then it'll be easier for the legislator, like Congress, to find duplication and eliminate programs and budget and so on and so forth. However, at the same time, we can't ignore the fact, and this is really something, There's something new that my books put on the table, we can't ignore the fact that when the proper incentives are provided, all of a sudden this culture disappears and they do share information in an interesting way. So I'm kind of like, at the beginning, chapter two, I kind of surveyed the land and I'm saying, you know, here are all whatever for the last 20 years how we have tried to nudge agencies to share information better and why it didn't work. And then I said, lo and behold, look at this interesting incentives-based approach. It is working. It is hidden no one talks about it. Can we imagine what we might do by building on top of this approach and taking it to the next level, which is really the heart of Chapter 6, where I actually even created a hypothetical public sector information exchange inside the American federal government. And actually Google has given me the money to build that public sector information exchange, to build a software prototype of that. Of that. And I, I, mean, I mean, I've already finished uh, part one of this project.
1: Oh, that, sounds, that sounds very interesting. We look forward to hearing more about that uh, in the future. So what kind of incentives do you think will work? Um, so talk about like perhaps exchange of funding kind of things. Or... Yeah. Okay, so for example, first of all, I, I don't
2: like individual incentives because, you know, the famous joke about um, the dumbest way you could, and I've, you remember, I have 20 years of software experience. <laughs> The dumbest way you can try and incentivize a software group is by bugs fixed, because it takes exactly one day for the software developer and for the quality assurance engineers to close themselves in the room and agree that every day the quality assurance engineer will discover 500 bugs and the <laughs> software developer will fix 500 bugs. So be very careful about what kind. So what I'm, ta- what I'm promoting in my book is really institutional incentives, and I'm explaining in Chapter 6 how basically you create incentives that in a trickle-down economy... It'll pay. It will pay off for the organization in such a way that it push down, trickle down economy. It'll make the individuals cooperate. And I'm showing in chapter six two models of this kind of trickle down economy and institutional. One is from Australia,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it's really a supply. It's, it's fascinating, Jasmine. Like it's again unknown institutional history of incentives inside government to foster information sharing. One case was in the mapping age, among the mapping agencies of Federal Australia, mm-hmm. and another one is in the crime uh, sharing. And what the Australian did brilliantly, and I haven't found an example like this anywhere else in the world. they created like an institution a public institution that really are, when you and I look at them and dissect them, they really are supply chain. And the agencies that participate in this game they get paid twice. One time they get paid to, uh, as, as providers of data. Okay, like providing raw material, and second time when this age, this new agency that was created to force this arrangement is profitable because producing interesting information assets that the world is willing to buy or to provide value, they get money again as shareholders. So basically, the Australian created a fascinating model that is basically the empirical execution of my theoretical idea
0: mm-hmm.
2: that in, a, in along a supply chain model, they are making sure that every time you take an information assets and increase its value a little bit, and some, somebody's going to profit from making it. And I tell in my book the story of how invested very quickly these agencies became in this information sharing game because they could see that it pays off. The second model that I'm providing is hypothetical. I'm creating, and I'm, I'm both visually and in writing, I'm creating like how, how might a public sector information exchange, which I call PSI, look inside the American federal government, how agencies and institutions will get credits, uh, how they will market them, how we can create like um, a cyclical, um, uh, a very positive, what I call it, virtuous, virtuous cycle, right. whereby those dollars are, uh, are invested and the credits are turned into dollars, IT dollars, the dollars are invested again in improving their information assets. I'm, cre- I'm trying to create an entirely new information sharing ecosystem inside the American federal government that is based on agencies' Uh, incentivized to trade their information assets with each other, and the dollars that come from these are being invested again in improving the existing information assets. So now come the punchline, both for the Australian and the real case and the American ones. Mm-hmm. It's cheap. It's dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. I estimate that the American government um, invests every year close to 40 billion dollars in some way or another, just at the federal level, trying to foster dif- different kind of information sharing arrangement. And the schema that I have in mind, we're talking about a couple of millions of dollars, mm. incentives, that would basically would be given to agencies in the forms of credits, and that they can trade this credit, and basically you would know that your information asset as an agency has a value in it, if and only if another agency has shown interest
0: in it. Mm. So
2: no longer can you tell stories to the legislator saying, oh, I've created the most important information asset. The legislator can say, but in the electronic trading arena, no one's showing interest in your information asset. So you might need to work harder about helping others discover the secondary uses of your information assets. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very, it's it's an extremely new and kind of path-breaking idea of how to foster information sharing in government, and I may add now also a very
1: cheap idea. We we like cheap in federal government, (laughs) certainly. So this sounds really interesting, really cool, and like it might really work and change a lot of things in government. But I have to ask you, what are the... Possible drawbacks, um, whether for an agency or for citizens? Or are there any drawbacks?
2: To, um, yeah, I mean, your questions are superb and really right on target. And thank you. This is really the topic of Chapter 7 of my book. In other words, what I've identified early on is that. It doesn't, like, I'm, I'm a technologist at heart, and, and I'm also a political scientist at heart, as you know. Mm-hmm. But my tendency is to put my hands on the keyboard and program something, right? Probably like you, like anyone else. So originally, when I started this project six years ago, I almost had an urge in my fingers just to start coding something. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew it's wrong. It's a mistake. Because problems with my idea of the public sector information exchange, the incentive-based idea and all of this, is basically they, they are not technological problems, Jasmine. They are ethical problems. They are political problems. Like, for example, would, would in my, in my in some examples, what about privacy? Mm-hmm. What about concerns from about you know, big brother government? Right. Well, some people have told me in conferences I went around the world and said to me, what are you doing? Our best defense is that the government is deaf and stupid, and they just don't share data. Are you actually helping them share data? And, and to this, basically, I have two responses. One is the, f- the first chapter where I say, listen, if you like your government deaf and stupid and not sharing information as your means of, of uh, uh, protecting your privacy and protecting yourself against Big Brother government, please understand, this is also the reason why nine eleven happened. Mm-hmm. Because perfect information on the terrorist existed, but 12 agencies had it in, broken down in 24 databases, and no one could access the data, even though you had a perfect client. The CIA was looking for information about Muhammad Atta, the ringleader, for 14 months before the event, knowing that he's a very dangerous terrorist in the United States. In Katrina, for example, you had bodies of people floating around, center, uh, 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 floating in the water and no no agency would pick them up, the dead bodies from the water, because they wouldn't share their information, Mm -hmm. the GPS information with each other. So what I'm trying to, the first thing that I say to people, be very careful. If you are too adamant about keeping government deaf and stupid and not sharing, you may end up also with this horrible disaster. And I have in chapter one, a lot of examples of this. But the second defense is even more interesting. I say to people, listen, you should really think about governmental efficiency and information and, and uh, privacy is too extreme along a pendulum clock, mm-hmm. continue. We're not in a good place right now. I'd like to move you a little bit more towards governmental efficiency, but I don't want to give up privacy protections. I'm concerned like you are about big brother government, intellectual property. You know, some people have told me, for example, Jasmine, they said, what are you doing? You're teaching that everything is up for grabs for money. Mm-hmm. This is bad. What about democratic ideas that people should be doing things and sharing for, you know, because it's the right thing to do, not because they are being incentivized with, with monitoring. So. so in Chapter 7, and also a little bit before in Chapter 5, I'm offering an, another idea, which is to exchange information as a contested commodity, another key word in my book. And what I mean, I say, listen, information inside government is not the first contested commodity of things that you're trying to commoditize. Throughout history, and I'm beginning in the 10th century, There always existed certain products, information for me is a product, Mm -hmm. certain products that were very scarce, that we knew that if we put them into the marketplace, into an exchange, circulations would be great, but we felt uncomfortable about doing so. It's not proper to trade kidneys. But if we do find a way to exchange kidneys for incentives, a lot less people would die. Mm -hmm. That's an example. So I identify in Chapter 5 like 30 different contested commodities beginning in 10th century Uh, 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 after the common era and I'm extracting lessons for them four main lessons and then I'm offering that if we apply these four lessons to an exchange inside government in information as a contested commodity then it's okay we can actually improve significantly information sharing and at the same time provide adequate answers for privacy concerns big brother government concerns intellectual property concerns, democratic ideal concerns. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to decide for you as the reader. In chapter seven, I'm saying here, I'll give you the best case against what I'm saying. And I'm telling you how I think I can mitigate these concerns. At the end, it's a judgment call. You have to make a judgment if you're willing to go to that brave new world that I'm offering. Mm
1: -hmm. So, so what is the future? Do you think of, you know, open data, uh, Exchanges between government agencies, exchanges between different governments of for information. I know you talk about Fukushima earlier in the book, and and how there was a failure to share information or to accept information from outside of uh, government, and how that had uh, uh, terrible effects. So, what is what do you think the future for data trade and and government data uh, and and exchanges? Is and what do you see? Is it bright? Is it more of the same or what?
2: Uh, I'll say something about that and maybe I will even pull, pull into it John, the Snowden affair and WikiLeaks that mm. would uh, bring. But I, I want to say one thing before I forget about Fukushima, the, the horrible uh, disaster, uh, disaster to the uh, Japanese nuclear reactor after the tsunami hit it. And, and this is another example like 9 11 and um, Katrina that I brought before maybe the readers know or they don't know, but in several cases out of Fukushima, Japanese agencies actually evicted poor fishermen, whole villages, directly into the radioactive plume mm. because other agencies refused to share with them information on where the radioactive plume is. So, you know, we, we, we look around the world, or the United States, we find the horrible examples like this, and what I'm saying in my book, I'm saying, it's unacceptable. You know, to continue, it's been like this for 20 years to continue behaving and preaching that the old models work is not good enough. I would like to put on the table and offer the world a new way to help agencies share share information. I think that basically the right question to ask following what what you just asked is that basically there there was, and I I, I almost finished the book with this, Stuart Brand, which is one of the oracles of the Information Age, in 1985, said a very famous sentence called, information wants to be free, you remember. But very few people actually go back to that old speech that he gave in some geeky conference and, and look, look it up, the whole paragraph. And That's not what he said. He said, information wants to free, and then immediately said that the other half of the sentence that everybody conveniently forget. He said, but information also wants to be rich. And my book is on that tension. It's between information wanting to be free and information wanting to be rich. And it's wanting to be free because it's so easy to replicate and distribute it. And it's wanting to be rich because it's the most important asset in the digital world that we live in. Right? Mm. So all this, what I, in my vision, all these models of sharing information could exist uh, side by side. Open data, which I call them in my book, consent models. So we want... And some incentives based model and some other models that I call in my book Coelse model, where we force in my book, basically legislators should think really carefully about the nature of the domain or the problem they're trying to attack and foster and, and apply the correct information sharing approach. There isn't one approach that would work. Open data would not solve all the information sharing inside government, in the same way that my own incentives based approach will not solve all the problems. The key is really to understand what are the approachable, the, the, almost like epistemic approaches available to us to improve information sharing and to apply the correct one to the correct problem. And then the, we could actually see major improvement. I promised you one more thing, and that is to connect Snowden mm-hmm. and Wikileaks. And th- this is the problem, especially in America, but I think it exists elsewhere. Whenever, whenever something bad happens the the clocks between governmental efficiency and privacy, um, the public is swayed at least Congress and the media and goes to the other states. So after nine eleven, it was oh my god, it's all because agencies refuse to share information. So it was the need to share instead of you know, and so, instead of the needs to know. And then you got things like the Patriot Act and how you know the, trying to build it. And said, oh oh my god, this is too bad. We mm-hmm. went too far, right? And then Snowden and WikiLeaks happen, right? And people say, oh, my God, look at all these things. They haven't been protective enough of their information assets. So they go to the other extreme. And what I'm trying to do is find a good, a better place than where we are today in the middle, where basically we understand that information sharing is necessary, but with the pro- proper defenses, including privacy uh, defenses, like I said before. I have to admit that... Uh, when these mega events happen, be they 9-11 or Snowden or Wikileaks, they don't help my case because it creates this tsunami of public opinion that moves the pendulum clock to one of the extremes and it takes usually two or three years to relax or for the opposite disaster to happen for people to understand that we went too far in this pendulum clock, to this extreme or to that extreme. But I haven't given up hope. I'm
1: So the book is Traversing Digital Babble, Information, E-Government, and Exchange. And so if you were to distill your book to a couple of takeaways, or or perhaps just one takeaway, that uh, message that your book is about, what would you say that is?
2: I would say that it is possible uh, for us to improve life-saving information sharing. Mm -hmm. inside. The governments of very large federated and democratic countries by empowering agencies to uh, receive uh, incentives to uh, commoditize and exchange their information assets with other agencies. And then you would see a lot of goods coming out of it. It's not the only, as I said before, it's not the only solution. For example, it's not necessarily the right mechanism to operate between agencies and citizens, Mm -hmm. but inside government, I'm kind of shedding light on the inside government in terms of fostering these mammoth agencies with their enormous information assets. It's a very good approach. It, it, it stands a chance to actually change the information-sharing ecosystem inside government. And you and I, as citizens, will benefit because we will see a better, more efficient government that can provide also a better services to citizens.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just asked you about... The future of e-government and information exchange, but what's the future for Alon Belled? What's next for, for you? Me? Yeah, I have
2: because uh, I, I have um as I said before uh, hinted twice or said it three times. I've got Google's attention, mm-hmm. and uh, the way it worked is that um, Google likes to talk about ten x problems. Ten x problems are problems where basically if you try to solve them incrementally. You, you know, you can do good, but not forever. So, for example, in Google's terms, like, if every year 50, not if, every year 50,000 people die in road accidents, So that means that we humans have failed as drivers. So a 10x problem is not to generate a, a slightly safer car, but it's basically get rid of the human as a driver, <laughs> right, right? Right. The autonomous car. So what I did, I pointed out to Google the problem of information sharing inside government it's a 10x problem. I even call it a 100x problem. And Google said to me, yeah, that's really interesting. We, we don't really deal with, with this problem. We don't even have the technology ourselves that focuses on, 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 on basically how to make agencies inside government discover the unanticipated secondary uses of, of information as of well other agencies we understand that it's critical. It could really, like you say, save a lot of lives and save billions of dollars every year. Would you mind developing the software? So basically, nowadays, I'm busy developing it. I finished already, like, the first nine months, and the first part of the software is, is working. And uh, I'm, I'm connecting now to my project, uh, a brilliant uh, Finnish um, computer scientist named Jako Holman. And together, we're going to execute phase two of this project. And I actually believe that if you come again and ask me, uh, in about a year or two years from now, I will have some, for sure, I will have some of the ideas of the book in a software
1: prototype mm. that you could actually implement inside government. Wow. That sounds really good. We're, we're happy that you came on the show again. Again, the book is Traversing Digital Babel, Information, E-Government, and Exchange. It's by MIT Press. It's out there right now, so you can get it where Amazon, from MIT, from every bookseller, right?
2: Absolutely. Cool.
1: Absolutely. And so thank you, Elon, for coming on the show. It has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week.